Back in 2011 or 2012, SFR was really viewed as an opportunistic or speculative investment because you were buying homes at a very low basis. And the bet you were making essentially was that those homes were going to recover. Then, uh, you know, in 2016, 17, after home prices had appreciated, the business kind of pivoted to becoming more about the stability and strength of the rental income. You know, over the last five years, people have been able to underwrite, uh, you know, the stable income stream, the strong occupancy rates, the controllable uh, expense basis. And now you're seeing more and more institutions look at SFR and saying, wow, this is not that different for us than multifamily. We're really underwriting a durable cash flow stream. And what you've seen is both the you know, sovereign wealth, wealth funds, uh, pension plans, endowments, um, insurance companies, and others just really look at single family rental in a similar way to multifamily and actually step back and say, instead of multifamily being our housing allocation, let's include single family rental within what we call housing. Welcome to the A Fire podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. If someone told me, 10 years ago, that one of the fastest growing institutional asset classes would be single family rentals. I don't think I would have believed them. And yet, here we are. Single family rental portfolios are yielding an average of 12.6% over five years, far outstripping the other real estate asset classes, such as multifamily, office, etc. And it's still growing. So Jonathan Ellenswick, the CIO of Tricon Residential, wrote a piece in the summer issue of AFIRE Summit called Institutionalizing Single Family, where he explains how this happened, how it is evolving, where we're going. And he's on the show with me here today to give us a little bit more of that insight. So thank you, Jonathan, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar, for having me. I know that this is a a hot seat, and there's a lot of demand to be in my position, so I certainly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, uh, to interview me. Well, just, just get comfortable. It's not that hot. It'll be all right. Um, but how, I want to start kind of with a more of a kind of a level setting and, and do it through the lens of everyone is, is blaming COVID for everything, right? So COVID's changing everything in real estate. Uh, you know, the office is empty because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. How much of the growth in, in single family rentals is due to what we've experienced over the last two years, and, and how much of it's coming from other forces uh, in the market and in society, demographics, economics, et cetera? It's a fantastic question, Gunnar. And in, in our opinion, uh, Tricon's opinion, the vast majority of the growth that you're seeing in single family rental was already in place and relates to underlying fundamentals that were here pre-COVID. And, and COVID has really just accelerated some of those trends. So for example, if you look at the institutional single family rental market, the vast majority of homes are owned and operated in the Sunbelt, mm -hmm. right? And the migration from coastal markets to the Sunbelt had already started prior to COVID, but in, money, in many cases when COVID hit and people had the flexibility of living essentially anywhere in the US to do their job, you saw people leaving some of these more expensive and or more crowded coastal cities to suburban Sunbelt markets. So again, that was a trend that had started before that got accelerated by COVID. And the second one really relates to the aging of the millennial generation and the formation of households. So clearly that is a demographic trend 
the passage of time during COVID was the exact same amount of time that would have passed without COVID, but people accelerated moving out of apartments where you know sharing walls, sharing elevators was maybe less desirable into moving into a detached single family home. So that's a trend that would have naturally occurred anyway, but COVID might have moved that up by one or two years. Um, obviously work from home was not really a major trend that was existing pre-COVID, so that's an additional accelerant, but the other two were always in place and they would have happened naturally. COVID just made them move a little bit faster. And, and the other two are so uh, pressing when you think about it. I mean, in, in the real estate industry, we've been talking about the impending housing shortage probably for 15 years because we could see the demographics. We could see what was what was coming. And then that uh, migration to the Sun Belt has also been going on for 15 20 years. I, I, I like the way it, it's, it's possibly an acceleration with COVID, but it is not the reason necessarily. Exactly. I completely concur. So, um, all right. Well, let's talk about what these are. I've, I've heard them described as, or as, as horizontal apartments, um, th these kinds of projects uh, and, and developments where you're trying to service apartments across a, a broader geographic space, not up and down. Um, what what are these single-family rental uh, portfolios becoming? If you could describe what the homes are like, what the what the subdivisions are like, what is this like? What are what are these? For sure, and, and maybe I'll divide the business into a few different components to help simplify it. Um, the, the major area of focus for Tricon and many of our peers historically has been buying scattered single-family resale homes. So the vast majority of the industry today are homes that have been acquired one by one. Initially, back in 2011 or 2012, those might have been acquired um, on the courthouse steps um, out of foreclosure. These were homes that were, you know, that the bank had taken over. But more recently, these are buying homes one by one through traditional resale channels like the MLS. So this, you know, that that element of the portfolio really just looks like the same average homes you might see on any street um, in suburban uh, United States. And you might go to a city like Atlanta where AFIRE is gonna be hosting a conference early next year and drive on a street and see 30 homes. And 28 of those homes might be owned by individuals. And two of those homes might be owned by someone like Tricon who can then rent them out. So the home itself in that case really looks no different than a typical suburban home. Um, you know, it, it might actually have a, a higher level of finishes or additional upgrades on the interior because it might have gone through a more recent renovation from an institutional landlord. But by and large, you can't really tell the difference between the home or the resident. You know, if, if all of the residents of those 30 homes walked out of their homes, you would likely not be able to tell which two are the rental families and which 28 are the uh, the owners. That, that is particularly interesting because I think a lot of times when people react to these kinds of ideas, they react based on kind of images that are not that are not clear that are not that are not true. Um, I think you referred to some of these homes potentially being the nicest house on the block um, because you've gone in and you've renovated or you put in some some uh, long term finishes, and then the user of that the, the tenant of that house is essentially swapping renting money from a bank to renting a home directly from you. Would that be an accurate description? Yeah, that's a very fair description. And again, people are, are really looking for different housing options. Yeah. And in some cases, the preferred option might be home ownership. But in others, someone might be in a city and say, you know, I, I might only be in this city or this part of the city for two years. 
and the friction costs of buying and selling a house, it's not worth me uh, trying to buy. Mm -hmm. Or someone uh, might say, I'd like to test out this area before I become a buyer. Or someone might have had something challenging in their credit history in the past, and they might have a very strong income today, but for whatever reason, their FICO score may not be high enough for them to secure a mortgage. Mm -hmm. Or they might have had to spend money on servicing student debt or healthcare expenses and may not have the down payment, again, even though they might have a $90,000 household income. So I think it's really important to realize it's not a one-size-fits-all situation, but rentership is very attractive for a wide cohort of people, and, and, and often those are families. And so when you think about what is viewed as traditional rental um, among institutions in the U.S. or institutional investors, they, they automatically gravitate to multifamily. But if you think about who multifamily is a fit for, it's really only a, a sliver of society, right? It might be uh, young single professionals or couples or retirees. But if you're a couple uh, aged 36 and 37 and you have a seven and a five-year-old, living in a suburban apartment building really is not a typical or, or an attractive housing choice. And if you're a rental, a renter, either by choice or necessity, um, you'd like to live in a home with a yard, with a garage, and also in a more uh, bucolic suburban location. If you think about where most, even garden style multifamily is located, it's often on you know busier commercial corners because you actually want the visibility. That's a that's a hallmark of good apartments. Is can people find it? Is it easy to find? Can they see my flag from the main street? Well, single family homes are often tucked away in quieter areas near parks and near elementary schools. And so for, for a, a large uh, cohort of America, uh, being in a single family home as a renter is a preferred option to apartments. Um, but in the past, your only option was really renting from a mom and pop or a small local property manager. Right. So if you were used uh, to renting from mid-America apartments, right, a huge uh, multifamily REIT in the Sun Belt, you're used to a certain level of institutional management and institutional service um, there was a, a maintenance person that could come to your unit same day or next day to fix something. There was a 1-800 number you could call if you had any issue. You, you liked that. And so when that person is now ready to move on but might want to stay a renter, you, you're attracted in many cases to institutional single-family rental where you can still get that same level of customer service and support that you were used to in institutional multifamily but get it in a single-family detached home um, as opposed to an apartment building. I, I think that's, I think that's interesting, and I think it's interesting that you you have folks that aren't necessarily just renting because they have no other no other choice, but quite often they're renting because that makes sense for them where they are in their life at that point. For sure, for for sure, and and so that that's one cohort of single family rental that is scattered homes, those two homes on the thirty home street. The other component. Um, which you're really seeing uh, discussed more over the last one to two years. It really has not been a big factor before that is called is kind of colloquially, colloquially called build to rent, right? And if you look at the build to rent space, that is really dedicated communities of single family rental homes. So that's the situation where all 30 homes on that street were built specifically to be rented, where all 30 homes are rented by people and owned by one landlord as opposed to, to separate ownership. And in some cases, that street might look like 30 traditional three-bedroom, two-bathroom, 1,700-square-foot homes. But in other cases, people are building a wider variety of product where you might see some one- and two-bedroom small lot units and some three-bedrooms and a much broader mix where the unit mix in that case might look more like apartments. So really almost you're seeing three, three subsets of this product. One is the scattered homes. One is traditional subdivisions that are all rental. 
And then one is really is horizontal apartments where you're taking units that might be the same size as apartment buildings, but scattering them out across a site as opposed to stacking them on top of each other. Those are the, really the three divisions I would make within single family rental. And we think there's good opportunities within each of those. Um, the scattered home product and the subdivision rental product really are, are attractive to families. And you know the smaller unit uh, horizontal apartment might be attractive more to traditional apartment renters, but those looking to be detached, those who don't like the idea of having someone on their walls or living above or below them. So all of these products are really uh, expanding the options or the, the spectrum of ha rental housing for, uh, for Americans. It also seems that depending on the market that you're in, that there are some markets that are more inclined towards a traditional multifamily, you know, something stacked up on top of each other when you're living in a city, when you have, uh, you know, kind of a walkable area. Um, markets like Atlanta have less of that, um, that it's almost like you really only have one option um, to live in something that's more suburban. Um, or you look at a lot of Sunbelt, it tends to be all suburban um, or close to. I think it's kind it of... Interesting. Exactly. This is this is really a suburban um, product, and and what you have seen again with COVID, uh, but a natural trend as, as uh, millennials, um, you know, age, they're looking for more space. It's hard to find more space in urban locations, so they gravitate um, out to the suburbs naturally. And so this is certainly, a, you know, again, and COVID has been an accelerant of this trend, but something that was hatching, ha happening naturally. You know, you're 25 and you might live in a high rise rental, even in a city like Austin or Atlanta. But by the time you're, you're 35 and have formed a family, you're more likely to have moved out to the suburbs. Absolutely. Kind of fun to have toddlers in a, in an elevator. <laughs> it's not something that, you know, <laughs> it's uh, not the safest thing in the world to do. So, all right. Well, uh, Speaking of safety, and, and actually we've been speaking about risk to a certain extent as well. When you think about the, the tenants, uh, to a certain extent, they're avoiding some of the risk and some of the friction. But what are some of the risks for the investor? What are some of the mistakes that can be made in this area? I mean, it's been growing well, so you know the, the, the sea is rising and it looks great and everyone's happy. But um, what are some of the things that you think um, perhaps some investors miss? Uh, or some investors need to pay more close attention to? It's a, it's a fantastic question. So, you know, a, a couple of risks that I want to highlight. One is just location, right, Gunnar? You know, you talk about the city of Atlanta, for example. How big is Atlanta? And, you know, if you're two hours outside of the city center, is that still Atlanta? Or are you in some other market that might have different drivers and becomes and is outside of the commuter shed of the city of Atlanta? You know, you might be sitting in your office in New York or L.A. or Munich, and it might look like it's close to Atlanta. But in fact, when you get on the ground and speak to people, you realize nobody in that town is commuting to Atlanta. And what you've actually invested in is in a town of 25,000 people, not a city of 5 million. So I would say being very careful with location and even when you get into major cities, um, understanding the school scores and the neighborhoods that people want to be in versus the ones that might be less desirable, right? Every, every city in the United States has, has better and worse areas or, or more desirable and less desirable areas. And owning rental homes that are targeting families in a location where the schools score a one out of 10 is less desirable than a location where the schools are a seven out of 10. Now, obviously, there's a high correlation between price and school scores. And you know, single family doesn't 
rental doesn't work as well, for example, if you're buying $800,000 homes. And so, you know, you may struggle to find school scores that are a 10 out of 10 uh, to make the economics work for this business. But again, you know, buying, buying uh, homes in locations where the schools are on the better half, let's say, of the spectrum versus the worst half, worst half certainly results in a higher quality residence and a higher quality portfolio. So I would say, you know, those are, those are some major factors. Another one that we've noticed really ties into that is from an economic perspective, as you as homes get more and more expensive, the residents have a, a higher propensity to become homeowners. And so, it, you know, you're going to have a higher turnover rate uh, and you're also maybe going to find less renters out there than if you're targeting really, I would say, what we call the middle market or that middle part of the population period pyramid. Um, conversely, if you go to the bottom part of the pyramid where you might find more renters, you also may struggle with finding uh, residents with high enough household incomes or stable enough employment to pay rent you know, on time consistently. So it's really trying to figure out the sweet spot in every market, both geographically, but also from a price point perspective. And really, if you think about it, what you're ideally looking for is the highest quality long-term renter, right? That, that's who you want to live in your home. The person who's going to live for 10 years in your rental home, but has a stable income that's continuing to grow, um, wants to rent for a long time, is going to pay their rent on time, um, and, and takes care of your home. So that, that's ideally what you're looking for in this business. So what kind of turnover, gen I mean, how would you characterize the turnover you've seen? Obviously, it's important in terms of the sweet spot, but uh, you know, now that you've done this for a while, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, it, it's a huge different, differentiator um, between single-family rental and multifamily. So in our single-family rental business, we're typically seeing turnover of 25 to 33% per year, which, you know, put another way, means that people are moving out every three to four years. If you compare that to traditional multifamily, where you're seeing turnover of 50%, that means people are moving out every two years. So people are staying in our single family rental homes at least one to two years longer. And what that means, number one, is lower turnover costs. If someone's not leaving, you don't have to, you know, right. repaint or, or refinish their unit. So there's a cost savings and they don't move out. So you don't have vacancy during that time frame. So when you look at the economics of the business, you're seeing residents stay longer, which reduces turnover and increases occupancy. Excellent. Well, well certainly it. it in, are there any other ways that you would that you would separate out multifamily, traditional multifamily from single family rental? For sure, there's there's a number. So so again, speaking more about the scattered single family rental home business, the components uh, of your expenses are, are, are quite a bit different. You know, even though you know uh, running a garden style apartment um, and a single family rental on the top line, you're generating rental revenue and then some ancillary revenue. The top line might be very similar. When you think about the expenses in an apartment building, for example, a large component of your maintenance costs and your capex has to do with common area amenities. Right, whether there's a swimming pool in the community or a, a common area or in, indoor room or a you know work from home office space or a you know home theater type room that everyone can share, you're you as the landlord are covering all of those costs, so you're you're maintaining those and you're upgrading those from time to time. Those and as well as there's a lot of landscaping. There's extensive landscaping in a suburban garden style apartment project that might be 10 or 20 acres. Um, in single family rental scattered site, you're, you're typically not maintaining any of those things. Right? There is no common area um, when you have those two of 30 homes. All you're really paying to maintain is the individual home. And typically in single family rental, the resident pays for all of the landscaping costs. So you have much lower common area expenses. On the other hand, um, 
you know, it's a lot harder to service those homes because they're scattered across a giant city. So you might be spending more on your maintenance technicians because they're driving around and they're, you know, servicing different components of the home. So you just see a different uh, breakdown of the expenses for the business. So you actually get to a very similar or even higher NOI margin in SFR. The components of the expenses are different though. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so we've had about 10, you know, 10 plus years of, of growth since the, the, the GFC in this area. And it really, I, I feel like this is like the decade that it kind of became something. Um, as we go into the next decade, um, what do you see happening in this space in terms of growth, in terms of uh, new entrants? Um, what, what do you think some of the things we should look for going forward? Well, we expect to see continued growth in this sector. And if you take a step back and you look first broadly at institutional real estate, um, given where fixed income uh, returns are and rates are right now, you're seeing increased allocation uh, away in many cases from fixed income as a whole and into real estate because people like the yield offered by real estate compared to, to bonds, for example. So you're seeing money flowing into real estate. And then within the broader real estate sector, when you look at the, the different food groups or components, you're seeing more money flowing into housing and industrial in particular um, as people look at you know, office and retail, which were very large asset classes, and which just have some uncertainty around them. That doesn't mean those asset, asset classes are going to go away. Obviously, they're still you know, extremely important and very large, but uh, there's some uncertainty around shopping centers and high-rise office buildings. And so you're seeing more people saying, wow, you know, housing is not going away. People are still going to need to sleep in beds, in bedrooms, in homes, or in apartment buildings. So we're seeing capital flowing into real estate as a whole looking for yield. And then within uh, real estate, we're seeing it flow, flow into housing. And then within housing, what we have seen, especially since this industry now is, is called 10 years old and has a bit of an established track record, we're seeing more and more institutions look at single family rental and say, wow, we can underwrite this now. You know, it's very interesting. Back in 2011 or 2012, SFR was really viewed as an opportunistic or speculative investment because you were buying homes at a very low basis. And the bet you were making essentially was that those homes were going to recover to where they were pre-GFC or close to that. And there was a major home price appreciation play associated with that. That was the, the main thesis at the time. Then uh, you know, in 2016, 17, after home prices had appreciated, the business kind of pivoted to becoming more about the stability and strength of the rental income, but there wasn't a long enough track record. So you didn't see a huge amount of institutional investment in 2016 and 17. But more recently, you know, over the last five years, people have been able to underwrite uh, you know, the stable income stream, the strong occupancy rates, the controllable uh, expense basis. And now you're seeing more and more institutions look at SFR and saying, wow, this is not that different for us than multifamily. We're really underwriting a durable cash flow stream. And what you've seen is both the you know, sovereign wealth, wealth funds, uh, pension plans, endowments, um, insurance companies, and others just really look at single family rental in a similar way to multifamily and actually step back and say, instead of multifamily being our housing allocation, let's include single family rental within what we call housing. So let's put more money into housing because we're, we're uncertain about office and retail. And then within housing, let's, let's include single family rental. So you're seeing significant flows into the space. Um, from a capital perspective, from a buying opportunity, uh, you know, there's five to six million retail homes that sell every year in the United States, and SFR buys well less than 100,000 of those homes. So we think there's going to be an evergreen or continued buying opportunity to pick off really a small number of homes uh, in a massive 
market and, and turn those into to rental homes and again provide people out there hardworking families with a wider range of housing options than they might see today. Well, I mean, that's an exciting picture. And I think it, it's something that everyone should pay attention to. I, I definitely encourage anyone who's listening to uh, go uh, online, afire.org, uh, and take a look at the Summit Journal for uh, this summer and take a look at John Ellenswig's uh, article on the subject. Uh, there's just so much here, and I have a feeling that all of us are going to be talking a lot more uh, about single family rentals over uh, the next few years. So uh, thank you, John, for sharing your wisdom on that. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening who has not yet subscribed to the A Fire podcast. What's what's keeping you back? You've got to do it. You've you've just gotta. So please make sure that you uh, you can use any of the various podcast services that are out there. We're listed on all of them. Uh, register and, and become a subscriber uh, today. So, uh, John, thank you so much for being a part of the A-Fire podcast. Thank you for having me, Gunnar. You've been listening to the A-Fire podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast. Thank you.